0: Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland.
1: Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer.
0: Let's do this. Okay. You want me to do the intro? Sure, I'll try not to be as weird this time. (laughs) (laughs) It was cute.
1: It was funny.
0: Well, welcome back to Midwretched, friends.
1: Yeah, welcome. Happy
0: New Year. Happy New Year to everybody. Hope that it has so far brought us more joy than 2020 did. I hope so. Yeah, 2020 was hard. I'm not going to have hope for this year. I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to let it happen. I mean, I admire that. You know me, I can't not have hope. So, (laughs) oh, Oh. you're such a disappointment as a person. (laughs) No, I just can't relate and I wish I could. I know, but we balance each other out. It's a beautiful part of our friendship. Exactly. You know? So I want to know if you are ready to hear about a story that legit researching it. Had me spooked, like nightmare level spooked.
1: No, I'm super psyched because your description last week was all kinds of Scooby-Doo and I loved it. And now you're telling me that it's like legitimately scary.
0: It is scary and it feels a little Scooby-Doo and it feels a lot like classic campfire tale stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it has definitely gotten into my head a little bit and really spooked me out so i hope that i hope that you are intrigued by this crazy tale uh do you have any updates or shout outs or anything before this case gets going um i don't believe so
1: oh you know what it's not really an update but i was i was doing something i don't remember what it was and I was looking up like Alyssa Bustamante. I just happened to like mm. Google her again. Mm-hmm. There are like fan pages for her. Really? Yeah.
0: That's interesting.
1: Not even like free Alyssa, like anything like mm. that, but like fan pages.
0: That's so strange. Oh. I didn't come up with anything like that when I was Googling her, but I didn't get past like the first couple of pages probably of Google results. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you went deep. I went so deep.
1: Yeah, I don't know what brought me back to it because I think I was, I don't know what I was doing. But yeah, I just wanted to share that with you because it was weird.
0: That's really interesting and so weird. weird. Yeah, I want to kind of take a deep dive into that. It's like a study in fan fiction in a way. Right. You know? It's really interesting. Yeah. I have a question for you that I'm really curious about. We've Mm -hmm. been discussing this at home here. Do you like hearing about cases better when they're solved or unsolved? If the
1: case is interesting enough, I like a solved case. Like if there's like lots of like different pieces, like the Lori case was really, really interesting to me because there were lots Mm -hmm. of like different pieces but generally, I love a mystery. And I know there's a lot of true crime people out there that hate when they don't know what happened. Yeah. But I do love a
0: mystery. That's interesting. That's Why? interesting. Well, so, um, you know, my partner has not been previously a true crime person, mm-hmm. but because of this project. And us being so amazing. Yes. He has listened to every episode and given me like his thorough feedback and he watches documentaries with me now so like you know he's on the level what an awesome and, supportive partner i know he's amazing and he does not like unsolved cases like mm-hmm. at all so he gets really frustrated when the case is unsolved and i do too but only because i get really geeky about investigations and trials you know do i have a frustrating doozy for you next week oh i'm so excited for Frustrating doozy. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I was just thinking about this. Like, I wonder what it is about why some people like ones that are solved, why some people don't, you know, don't like that. His take is like he wants the kind of the closure in a way, like he doesn't want to be left on worried, you know, or anxious Mm -hmm. for people. So that's just kind of interesting. I think that's totally fair.
1: If I like as a person had emotional investment in the case, obviously I would want it solved and all of that. But. I don't know. My little weird neuroatypical brain loves a puzzle.
0: Yeah, and in my house we get emotionally attached to like basically everything, so. Yeah. It, or emotionally invested, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> so we're always kind of like, feels, feels, feels. So many feels, so many feels. All the feels. And so speaking of my delightful partner, he is the one that turned me onto this case. Yeah, I am so psyched about this case. Yeah, this case is crazy balls. I know
1: nothing yeah. about it whatsoever.
0: I didn't either, and he was kind of just, like, thumbing through, like, interesting cases in the Midwest, and and he's like, have you ever heard of this one? And he starts describing it, and I'm like, that's a movie. (laughs) And he's like, no, this is real. So, yeah, this was new to me until he brought it to my attention, and it's crazy. So, before I start telling it, I want to give some kudos to the people who kind of brought this particular narrative angle to the case. Mm -hmm. So the centerpiece of this case is going to be a young girl named Sandra Chesky. She is a survivor of this incident. Oh, okay. And she came forward. She was instrumental in in solving it and everything. But she kind of stayed in hiding in a way for, Mm -hmm. like, decades and then wanted to tell her story. So she reached out to this husband and wife duo of authors, Phil and Sandy Hammond, and they kind of wrote a book basically from her point of view about this case. Oh, so, that's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, Sandra is such a survivor. And she's so amazing. And she's the reason that we know, like, everything that we know about this case. So I just want to give that kind of that do. And the book is really good. It's called Gitchy Girl. Hell yeah. What's yeah. her name again? Her name is Sandra Chesky. All
1: right. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love somebody that takes control of their own narrative.
0: Totally. Totally. And she's she's a rock star. And there is so much about that. And she, at the time of the case, was 13. So the fact that oh, she was able to wow. do everything she did is unbelievable.
1: Oh, wow. That's so awesome.
0: Yeah. So All let's right. get into it. Let's tell her story. Okay. So I am here today to bring you the story of the Gitche Manitou campfire murders. Yes. Yeah, got a cool name, right? It's all, I'm already super intrigued. I know. It's. It feels like I'm in a meeting of the Midnight Society introducing um... a story for Are You Afraid of the dark? Except it's real. So the Gitche Manitou murders, they took place in 1973 at this beautiful, wonderful place called the Gitche Manitou State Preserve, which um, most of it is in northwestern Iowa. And there's like a little button of it that crosses over into South Dakota. Okay. So it's on the state line. It's actually kind of like that whole area is kind of considered to be like a tri-state area because Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota kind of converge there. Mm -hmm. So the park is, uh, it's a state preserve, but I kind of want to dig into the name a little bit.
1: Yeah. Interesting name.
0: Yeah. Well, so it's a name I think you hear a lot of iterations of in the Midwest. So Gitche Manitou or Gitche or Manitou um, are all names that you hear kind of. All over the Midwest, at least in my experience, especially in Michigan. Roughly, Gitchy Manitou translates to Great Spirit in several Algonquin languages.
1: Oh, okay. Because I've heard Manitou a lot, like all over the place.
0: Yeah. Gitchy,
1: I wasn't so sure
0: on. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's the kind of the great part. And so sometimes, like, um, it's anglicized or kind of Christianized to a translation to God, but a lot of, um, indigenous thinkers and historians they just say that that doesn't quite capture it Mm -hmm. really like Gitchi Manitou is the the giver of life, the creator of all things but sometimes they also call it the great mystery Ooh, yeah so I just think that's beautiful very cool Um, and kind of like it's one of those I feel like you'll hear this like iterations of this all over the Midwest and we don't really maybe think about it that much Mm -hmm. that name actually has like huge significance culturally So neat yeah just wanted to give some word to that Love it, love it. So the State Preserve itself, it's 91 acres, and it's beautiful. It is known for basically two things. It's got these gorgeous outcroppings of pink Sioux quartzite rock formations, Ooh. and it's just beautiful. Uh, but unfortunately, it's also known for a 1973 campfire massacre, mm-hmm. and that is what we are here today to yes. discuss. Yes. And then we throw the sand on the fire. Oh, yes. Could you totally okay so i'm gonna take us back to 1973. so on november 17th 1973 five teens from sioux falls south dakota which again were right by that state line this wasn't wouldn't be like a weird long trip or anything to make they went to the preserve for an evening of just like teenage fun around the campfire so it was four boys and one girl sandra and they brought like a guitar and they just want to have, like, campfire and sing songs and probably tell stories and, you know, kind of uh, do the do the thing. Right. I'm getting so nostalgic. Yeah, I know. It feels so kind of like chill Midwestern teenage life, you know, <gasps> I miss it. <laughs> I know. Well, this story didn't make me miss it, but.
1: Oh, yeah. But yeah. just the idea of friends, campfire.
0: Whatever, yeah. teenage yeah. shenanigans, like nature, all that good stuff. So, yeah, they and the park also like kind of butts up against the Big Sioux River, which is mm-hmm. really beautiful. And so they were gonna just kind of sit by the water and have you know like a little campfire, guitar, <laughs> good time. So, <laughs> so the people that were there, it was four boys and one girl. So Roger Essam was seventeen, Stuart Beatty was eighteen, Dana Beatty, Stuart's little brother, he's fourteen. And then Mike Hadreth was 15. And then one girl who was, like I said, 13-year-old Sandra Chesky. So Sandra was dating Roger Essam, and she would get kind of a lot of heat later because she was only 13 mm-hmm. and Roger was 17, but he didn't know that she was 13. Oh. She had fibbed about her age. <gasps> ah,
1: yeah. uh, I see.
0: Yeah. So they weren't, like, super seriously dating. They had met at a drive-in movie, theater over the summer and had kind of been doing the like group dating really innocent kind of sweet stuff so this was kind of actually like a really meaningful night for sandra because he invited her to come and it was just kind of had like a different vibe to it she was like it was very romantic and yeah but they had just like held hands and like you know little smooches like nothing crazy so she got a lot of heat for like why are you dating a 17 year old but because, Roger didn't know.
1: Yeah, because she was
0: 13, and you're dumb when you're 13, and it's the 70s, and yeah, totally. And we say it a lot, like when it comes to teenage girls in lots of like tricky situations, that they look older than they are, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, that feels kind of misogynistic. Like, what's a 13 year old girl supposed to look like, right? Yeah, um, but that was kind of like what made it believable for Roger sandra you know looked for all intents and purposes to be 16 or whatever i was gonna
1: say like what would be an appropriate age to date a 17 year old 14 15
0: yeah so it's you know i just like i got mad hearing about the heat that she got about that yeah so on the 17th uh a very excited roger essam called sandra uh, and invited her to the park with him and his dudes. So the boys all went to school together, and the reason that Sandra was kind of able to fit about her age is that she went to a different school district in, like, a suburb, so mm-hmm. they didn't have friends in common or anything. So this was kind of Roger and all of his friends from school, um, and they all just, like, they had these kind of really typical teenage boy in the 70s interests. They loved music. They loved cars. Like, they just seemed, like, really wholesome, You know, nice kids. Good Midwestern boys. Exactly. So Stu was the oldest boy. He had a van. And so he volunteered to come (laughs) and pick everybody up. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He had a big blue van, like very 70s van. God, this is all so like period piece. It really is. It feels very, very kind of a little on the nose. But Mm -hmm. So he kind of picks everybody up in his big blue van and kind of volunteers to drive the whole crew out to the park. And I think it's kind of interesting that Sandy's brother, Bob, almost came along. But as she was getting into Stu's van, one of Bob's friends pulled up and was like, dude, there's this really hot girl at this party. You got to (laughs) come with me. So the brother goes with a friend. Mm -hmm. And so Sandra stays with the crew of boys that she's going to go hang out with. So I kind of call them the crew or Sandra and the boys. And that's just kind of became my like term of endearment for them as I was researching about this so they didn't get a start until pretty late in the evening uh Sandra's mom actually got a lot of heat too for like why is your daughter out you know at nine ten o'clock and mom was kind of a little absent like she was around but she worked a lot she kind of did her own thing kind of some troubles Nobody's a perfect family, and I don't feel like you should stop
1: judging imperfect families.
0: Totally. Sandra got a lot of heat in town. It just makes me mad, so... No wonder she felt like she had to go into hiding.
1: Like, all of these stupid daily things that everybody is experiencing and struggling Mm -hmm. with, Mm -hmm. everybody's going to use against her. Totally.
0: And it gets worse. So... Yeah. Yeah. So... They hit the road, and they finally got to the park like a little bit after 9 o'clock. So it's 9 p.m. in November. You know, that's probably an hour after sunset, I would Mm -hmm. say, in the Midwest in November. So it's definitely dark. And it just took them a while because they had to make a couple of stops that were very teenage to me. Like, oh, I forgot my guitar. We have to double back. Oh, we need some snacks. We have to go, you know, here or there. So just kind of like, you know, Sandy was kind of along for the ride. (laughs) <laughs> and she was getting kind of anxious because, you know, they were out so late. But, you know, she was trying to play it really cool. And the boys were just kind of doing like typical teenage boy stuff, it sounds like to me.
1: I need to get my guitar. We got to
0: stop for Swedish Fish. Exactly. I just that. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah.
1: Sorry. It's giving me flashbacks. When I turned 16, like the first thing I did when I got my license was take a bunch of my friends who were also probably 14, 15, 16 and drive down to Kentucky like in the middle of the night for no reason
0: yeah yeah I know we all kind of did that stuff yeah really took me back too like it all sounds like so much like stuff that I did so anyway so they got there to the state preserve and they walked around kind of in the dark for a while looking for like the perfect spot and kind of as they were walking they found a campfire that still had a little bit of embers burning and so they thought, okay, let's not take this spot because that might be somebody's spot that they might come back to or maybe mm-hmm. somebody's camping nearby. Let's kind of keep moving. So they ended up finding a really beautiful spot kind of on the banks of the river. Beautiful. Um, so it was chilly, but it was beautiful. And they were able to build like a roaring fire. So they're all kind of sitting around and, you know, Stu was kind of softly playing the guitar. And Dana, his brother, is just kind of pushing a rock and Michael is just nodding to the music and... Roger and Sandra are just cuddled up by the fire, and it's just like a really beautiful night. This is a genuinely an idyllic midwestern
1: pretty thing, yeah. Yeah, and you're gonna ruin it, aren't you?
0: Yeah. So that was until Dana said, "Did you guys hear something?" And so Dana was kind of pushed up on a rock, but Roger had also heard something, and so he kind of had to hush his guitar playing, and they all just sat really, really still and listened. And what they heard was the rustling of tree branches and what sounded like twigs snapping underfoot. So they all kind of froze um, aside from Mike. And Mike ends up being kind of a big hero here. Um, he was a very accomplished athlete. Mm-hmm. So he was like extremely physically fit, in excellent shape. And that seemed to kind of instill in him a sense of bravery that kind of feels almost superhuman in this story. Yeah. So he kind of stood up and like, took kind of a defensive posture while they were kind of whispering their speculations they thought it was maybe a bear Mm -hmm. um, or somebody coming back to kind of claim that spot Mm -hmm. that spot where the campfire was kind of burning out now one of the boys and i think it's interesting that sandra's account didn't say who i'm gonna take a guess and say Stu because he was the oldest one Mm -hmm. he thought they all just needed to kind of chill out so he pulled a tiny joint from his pocket (laughs) okay and pass it around to the other kids.
1: I hear hardcore Um, bringing me back. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) I know, right. (laughs) So he's like, let's just chill out. Let's smoke a little. Um, And they took some, like, tentative puffs and just tried to kind of be casual. And Mm -hmm. that got Stu kind of chilled out enough to tell his little brother, like, hey, let's go find some more firewood and keep this fire going. Yeah. Now, Mike, Sandy, and Roger were still a little bit spooked. Mm -hmm. And Sandy said that she didn't uh, inhale. She just kind of puffed. And so she was probably still kind of in her in her sober mind. And that kind yeah. of makes me think maybe the other two were as well. Yeah. Um,
1: Everybody's kind of trying to fake it and fake brave. and
0: Exactly. Yeah. So they kind of stayed close together. And as they were kind of standing together in the same spot, they heard the sounds escalate. They're faster, they're louder, and they're more rhythmic. So more the sound mm. of hiking quickly in the bush so they called for Dana and Stu who rushed back and but they were not the source of the sound it was coming from a different direction mm-hmm. so out of the corner of their eyes they see two figures skulking on the tree lined ledge so they shouted out hey now for some reason they kept thinking okay let's build a better fire rather than let's get out of here, which Mm -hmm. I'm not totally sure why, but...
1: um, I feel like fire, you feel like you can see more, and when you see more, you feel a little bit safer, or other people will see you.
0: Right, and there's every reason to think this is going to be just kind of a normal, like someone's out for a late hike, or someone's just messing with you or whatever. And so they built the bigger fire, and they saw the two figures kind of, again, like kind of floating in the trees. So Roger finally shouted out, who are you? What do you want? To the figures in the trees. And so then not two, but actually three shadowy figures emerged from the tree line. And the kids saw fairly immediately that they had guns. Oh, shit. Yeah. So before they could really react, some shots rang out and Roger was down. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So Mike, the super athletic kid, he grabbed Sandra, and moved her behind some trees by the river. Mm-hmm. So he had the presence of mind to think, like, let me let me shelter you and take you to a safer spot. So they kind of crouched on and tried to just stay silent. And they heard another shotgun blast come through, and then everything was just quiet for a minute. Mm-hmm. From the silence, Dana called out for his brother, Stu, who was on the ground, wounded but not oh yet my dead. God. Yeah. So Stuart just moaned and moaned in the silence. And Mike and Sandy st- tried to stay as quiet as they could. Oh. And then suddenly another voice shouts, we're with the police. Come out with your hands up. OK. So, yeah. Again, Mike, this smart, smart kid, shouts back, OK, there are two of us coming out, uh, representing him and Sandra. Mm-hmm. And that they would approach slowly, please don't shoot us. So as they came out, Mike kind of then more emboldened says, who the hell do you think you are? And that was enough to piss off one of the gunmen who mm-hmm. fixed his gun on Mike and shot wordlessly and without impunity. Oh my God, who the fuck are these people? And this is real. Like this happened. So Mike, of course, dropped to the ground and Sandra, thinking that she should play dead, dropped with him. Oh, okay, smart, Sandra, honestly. Yes. Sandra's amazing. So uh, Mike was shot in the shoulder, so he Mm -hmm. was not yet dead. So the two kind of played dead together, and Sandra knew that he was still alive. They had kind of met eyes. So Sandra starts just taking in what she could see in the dark. So she could Mm -hmm. tell it was two skinny guys, one bigger. The bigger guy was wearing like a Russian fur trapper hat, you know, Mm -hmm. ear flaps. And while... Sandra was watching, the three guys were just walking around the site, kind of whispering amongst themselves, while Sandra and Mike just tried to stay still. How far were they from the campsite? It's not totally clear, but within probably 20, 30 feet. Oh, God, that's terrifying. Yeah. So they came back and kind of to try to see what was going on, they kicked Mike in the back, who, of course, had been shot in the shoulder. So he cried out in pain and grabbed his shoulder, and one of the guys shouts out, this one's still alive. Oh, no. So they ordered Mike and Sandra to stand up and put their hands in the air and just do as you're told.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So miraculously, we haven't seen Dana in a bit, but he appeared at Sandra's other side. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, we know that Dana is alive. We don't know necessarily where Roger and Stuart are. Okay just keep in mind everything has got to be so crazy dark like we're in yeah a rural rural space so i think about like the dark sky preserve and how dark that is mm-hmm. that's what i kind of envision here so even if everything was happening in like a fairly tight radius it doesn't mean you could see it oh yeah you, you can't know? see
1: any i mean you have the moonlight and that's it mm-hmm. which can be bright but
0: it's not going to illuminate a big area No. And in heavy tree cover, it might not illuminate much of anything. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So this is where things get a little bit weirder for me. One of the men said, let's take him this way, boss. Then the man known as the boss said, this is a drug raid. Don't make any sudden movements and do exactly as you're told. (sighs) Yeah. So somewhere during this walk, the third man went off on his own. And we're guessing it was to a vehicle. Okay. The fact that they had a joint, and the kids were so young. Oh, they had they, to be terrified. Yeah. And, you know, Stewart's the oldest boy, and he's gone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got really young teenagers kind of left here, and they did have a joint. So the kids at this time thought it was a legit raid. Well, and also, it was the 70s, and so that would happen in the mm-hmm. 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they just thought, like, we need to do what we're told mm-hmm. and just kind of get, get through this. We'll do our time. We'll pay our fines. We'll do whatever. But there was also that sense of relief to hear, okay, this is law enforcement. So, you know, their job is also to take care of us and keep us safe. So there's this relief that now we're going to be led to a squad car and we'll just at least get out of here, right? We'll get medical attention and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So the relief doesn't last very long, however, because instead of being led towards a road, they're led further down a dirt path. Okay. So somewhere along that walk, Mike, and again, he was shot in the shoulder. He mustered up enough courage to ask if they could put their arms down because he was shot in the shoulder. And the boss said that they could, but warned them not to pull anything because there's another cop around the corner. Mm-hmm. So Sandra took Mike's arm and helped him walk, because at this point he's very weak and losing a good amount of blood.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. But this kid, in his infinite smarts and bravery, he thinks to kind of test the men a little bit, and he asks if they know a Mr. Jensen. And his thought was probably to call their bluff.
1: Was there a particular Mr. Jensen he was thinking of, or just... We don't know,
0: but it was it seemed like an attempt to kind of call their bluff. So that seemed to kind of spook the boss who mulled for a minute before saying no. Okay, And then uh, he stopped leading the group and went back to the back to confer with the other guy. That something about that made him uneasy.
1: I'm just kind of thinking, like, did he just by happenstance happen to know a friend of a friend's dad or an uncle or whatever? And he
0: very well may have. We Mm -hmm. just don't know. So as they walked, though, Mike is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And he actually eventually just sinks to the ground. Mm -hmm. And Sandra sat by his side until everyone else caught up. And I imagine that was only just a minute or two. And they demanded that they get back up. Mike, at this point, is struggling to stand, but he was able to. And he kept asking, when is the ambulance coming? When is the ambulance coming? In return, the men asked for all of the kids' names. And so they told him. Mm -hmm. But they were still being led further and further into the woods, not near what any of them knew to be a road. Mm -hmm. At this point, I think Sandra was kind of emboldened by Mike's courage a little bit. And she gets chatty as well. She's also really scared for Roger, who she's pretty in love with. Mm -hmm. And she's asking them where Roger is um, and if they could all ride together when they're taken to the station. Mm -hmm. And the boss finally said that Mike would be going to the prison hospital and snorted that it would be heaven compared to where Dana and Sandra were headed.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. So she asked how long they would get like behind bars. And again, the boss kind of pauses for a second. And he says five to 10 years. And that pause made Sandra think like, okay, that's weird. He should know what kind of time we'd be facing if he's law enforcement, right? That's clever for
1: a 13-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if totally accurate, but clever for a 13-year-old. It's
0: not, but it's smart. It's a smart thought. Have they seen these men's faces yet? Not well enough. Okay. Yeah. Not well enough. So, mostly at this point, she was able to kind of make out like mostly their bodies, you know, height and weight and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so then the boss kind of says again, I bet they get 10 years, right, JR? Uh, referring to the chubbier guy who said, Yep, 10 years. So now we've got um, another name, JR. Okay. Then suddenly the boss orders them to stop walking and stand still and tells them, Don't try anything stupid. So at this point, headlight beams shine through the woods. And the boss shouts, over here, hatchet face. Hatchet face. Mm-hmm. Hatchet face. The headlights approached, revealing a white pickup truck, out of which came the third man from earlier. Oh, in the headlights, she could see that he had a very pockmarked face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is hatchet face. Hatchet face is also a character in Crybaby. That's crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so they see the pickup truck, which of course is not a squad vehicle. So, Mike again is so weak, he asks if he can sit down. And JR shouts, Stand where you are, or we'll blow your fucking heads off. So, Mike again prompts weakly but bravely Is the ambulance on its way? And the boss asks for their names, ages, and some ID.
1: Okay.
0: And the way that they asked for ID also struck Sandra some reason as Mm -hmm. though they didn't know quite what to ask for i also think this point is interesting they all the kids have some form of idea school idea social security card whatever so they take him out dana had a social security card in his wallet and that's what he gave the the guys and then the guys kind of paused and said how many girls are here dana was not a girl but he could be mistaken for one in the dark
1: yeah, and Dana is a can that as a name can go
0: either way. Right, exactly. He had this beautiful, soft kind of shoulder-length hair and a quiet sing-song voice that Sandra almost said made it sound like he was kind of always singing a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and he also loved to play the guitar like his brother. I love him. I love Dana. Me too. And like in the dark, I could see somebody thinking. Like once you see a picture of Dana, you know, you could see somebody thinking that they were a girl. So. They told the men that there was only one girl, and it was Sandra. And then Hatchet Face told them to sit still in a very tight circle while the three men could talk. So they were whispering kind of quietly to to each other. But the kids could kind of make out that they were talking about tying them up and getting them in the truck, like Mm -hmm. the best way to do that. So when they came back, they came back with wire and ordered Sandra to put her hands behind her back, which she did. The wire was very sharp and cut her wrists if she moved against it. So she had to stay very, very still. And in fact, when they told her to get in the back of the truck, she said, I can't because she was tied up. So the boss picked her up and lifted her into the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. They had a gunny sack waiting in there. She asked what it was for, and they said it was to put over her head. And she begged them not to do it.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. After a pause, the boss agreed to not put the sack over her head. And then she asked, you know, she's feeling kind of braver by that. She asked, will you untie me? And they did. So at this point, she's thinking, okay, maybe we can get some real answers here. And she asked after Roger, where was he? How's he doing? And they said he was hit with the stun gun. He'll be fine. So now at this point, Sandra's in the back of the pickup truck, separated from the other boys, which is Mm -hmm. making her feel very, very uneasy. Yeah. The boss climbs into the car and begins to drive. And Sandra is just watching from the back of the truck. Is she in the truck and bed or in the cab? I can't totally tell.
1: I feel like Do in the I 70s, in they... The yeah, probably in the truck bed, because they didn't have exactly large cabs in the 70s. Right, yeah, I
0: don't think there was, like, a bench seat. And it was a 60s vehicle, so it was, yeah. it was old.
1: Okay. Oh, God, that's scary. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So, the boss climbs in and starts driving, and... um. Sandra, as she was driving away, locked eyes with Mike. As she's watching, Jr. forced the mortally wounded Stewart to stand up and join Mike and Dana in their walk along the road. And then I assume in that point, they asked where their vehicle was because Hatchetface went off to get Stu's van and drove up. So the assailant stood in front of the three boys and kind of systematically <sighs> executed them. Yeah. Oh, my so God. They, Yeah, they shot Dana first, then Stu, and then Mike last. Oh my God, why? Why? Who are these people? That's the question. So I would also add at this point, just another layer of tragedy to it, that they were shot with buckshot, which if you know anything about hunting ballistics, which I didn't until this, (laughs) um... Buckshot is basically these like giant bullets. Yeah. Little bullets in there, and they're meant to be able to kill a deer in one shot. So that they, when they hit, they spread out so they exactly. do more damage. Mm hmm. And that was the kind of very, very destructive type of bullet that was used on these boys. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So a lot of damage. Why? Good question good question. Do I get an answer to this question? Not really. Uh, you're killing me. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, what happens next I think is very strange. So now it's Sandra and the boss in the car. And they're driving this long, dark road in the direction of Sioux Falls. But they're circling kind of around the city. Like, they're making a little circle mm-hmm. around the city. And that would come in handy for Sandra later because... The fact that it was kind of a roundabout route gave her a lot of time to memorize everything she could about the truck. So she memorized, there's a crack on the windshield on the driver's side. There's an inspection sticker with this information on it. She's got everything kind of locked in her memory.
1: Awesome. Awesome.
0: We love you, Sandra. She's amazing. So they finally arrive at an abandoned farmhouse. Uh, And at that time, the other men were getting rid of Stu's van and picking up their own vehicle in order to meet the boss up later. Mm -hmm. So the boss and Sandra are at this farmhouse waiting and they have a conversation. He told her that he wasn't going to take her to the sheriff because, you know, she was a first time offender. She was young. She was a girl uh, and he didn't want her to get into too much trouble. So just trust him to get her out of this mess as long as she wouldn't describe him to the other cops. Okay. So she kind of fired back a little bit and said, okay, why would you shoot the boys with no warning? He said, oh, we did warn them, and they didn't stand down, which we know was not true. Did she hear or see them shot? Yes. Okay. Both. Yeah. Uh So she knew that wasn't true. I mean, the circle that this all happened in was actually a really tight... Okay. Like, I don't think this situation would have been possible by daylight. I was gonna say it's because I guess in my head I
1: thought like they had taken her in the truck and driven away for a while, and then they waited
0: to shoot the boys. But it sounds like it was it was in a really ni- tight timeline. It fairly tight. Okay. Wow. Yeah. The like kind of the equivocating was like when they were kind of walking along, like. What's you know? What do we do next? That kind of little whispering, mm-hmm. but I don't think that any of it really took that much time. And I actually have a timestamp kind of coming up, actually, okay. for you, which I find really helpful. I love timestamps. I love near. I love timelines. Sure. You know this. I do know this. I do know this. So she kind of keeps asking, just why? What's going on here? And boss told her, well, I thought that Dana was a girl, so that's why we spared him for so long. Which, again, would kind of make you think that the motivation was sexual. Yeah. That that really Sandra was kind of the object of everything. And
1: so clearly by now we have all put together that they're not cops.
0: (laughs) Well, we have. But Sandra, again, it's a 13-year-old girl.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: And she hasn't. She's got her suspicions, and she's got her, like, that's weird, that's weird, like little kind of red flags going off. But But yeah, being 13 and terrified. Yeah, she's still kind of trusting that this is a situation that's going to end okay for her. Uh So then the boss gives her a can of Coca-Cola and says that it would neutralize the quote-unquote grass so they couldn't test her for the marijuana.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, and even that verbiage alone is like, no police officer is going to call it grass. Not fucking 70. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Again, like, red flag there, too. Um, So she drank the Coke, thinking, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you know. So they sat and kind of talked for a while. And then the boss, to Sandra's perception, was getting kind of uneasy and told her, oh, we need to go to another drug bust, and you're coming with me, and puts her back in the back of the truck And drives her to another abandoned farm.
1: Did anybody see them at all? Like, I know they're at, like, a national park. They're in the forest. But were there any other campers or anybody that...
0: No. Okay. It was so rural. It's November. Mm -hmm. So what we don't know is, like, did these guys go out hunting for people? Like, was this kind of the object of the night? Or Mm -hmm. were they doing something else? Yeah. And, you know got provoked or just started kind of daring each other or whatever, we don't really know. Um, I've got some theories, but I'll be curious to hear what you think kind of once it all comes together a little bit. This is crazy. It is. It totally is. And and just like the chain of events is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. So they pull up to this other abandoned farm and there's kind of a dilapidated shell of a barn and JR and Hatchet Face were already there. Mm-hmm. So the other two men, when the boss and Sandra pulled up, Sandra could register the surprise on their faces that she was there. Mm -hmm. So Jair approached her and kind of jeered at her a little bit and uh, eventually grabbed her, ripped off her clothing, and raped her on the back of the truck.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. So she kind of dissociated, and the next thing she could remember, she was in the back of the truck again And she could hear the men arguing. Mm -hmm. One of them was shouting at the boss that he screwed up. And we can presume that that means that he screwed up by bringing Sandra alive to the farm. Yeah. And then they argued about who was going to kill her there. So the boss is like, this is my situation. I'll take care of it. And the hatchet face should drive Jr. home. Okay. Here is where you're going to have a a response. (laughs) So, where was home for JR, you might ask? Mm hmm. Home was the Minnehaha County Jail. JR was incarcerated at that jail. What? Out that day as a part of a work release program. Oh my God. Yep. We will find out later that one of the other men called the jail for jr pretending to be his boss at his work release job asking if it was okay for him to work a double shift and of course the jail said yeah sure and boss was boss pretty much Uh... yep so jr gets dropped off back at jail his home
1: Listeners, if that, if that sounded weird, it's because I'm facepalming so hard. It's so hard. I don't even know
0: how she has a face
1: lock. <laughs> <laughs>
0: don't turn yourself into a hatchet face. Mm-hmm. So hatchet face, speaking of, drove to a lake called Grass Lake, which was just outside of Sioux Falls, and dumped all the weapons in the water. So that's what he was doing. So meanwhile, Sandra and the boss are alone again. And she knows that the boss stayed behind to kill her. Mm -hmm. And so she has had some, quote unquote, success with staying safe in this entire narrative by being chatty. Yeah. She tells him, she says, you know, I was a virgin. And he says, I don't believe you. And she says, I'm only 13. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to cause him some pause. After a while, he says, I'm going to see how much guts you have. I'm going to take you into that old house and try to scare you to death. Boo. Boo. And starts laughing hysterically. He orders her into the abandoned house and tells her to look in each room, looking for quote-unquote critters that need to be. She starts looking in the windows and gets scared. And <laughs> yeah. to go in. Yeah. She refused to go in. Don't go into the murder house. Yeah. So he gave up and ordered her back in the truck. So just kind of a weird... Feels a little bit like buying time in a way. Yeah. I...
1: I I completely understand what Sandra's doing. Yeah. 100%. We've talked about, like, the fawn response and all of that. Mm -hmm. And she is expert in it at this point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What the fuck is boss doing? I, I think he's nervous. Yeah. And... I I have a th- somewhat theory later. Uh-huh. So they get back to the truck, and when the truck starts up, Sandy can see the clock on the dash that it read 4.30 a.m. Okay. So at this point, her ordeal has been going on for about six hours. Like from the time that they got to the campsite? park. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, she's exhausted. She's... At a level of exhaustion that we cannot comprehend emotionally, physically, just fried so spiritually. Kind of Jesus. Yeah, exactly. So she was like kind of in and out of like a sleepless haze basically for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were just sitting in the car with the engine on. They weren't rolling yet. I assume it was getting really cold and maybe the boss just wanted to get warm a little bit. And he's got her in the cab of the car at this point.
1: Okay, so, so he let her, he's showing some sympathy. For her. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. And this is where it gets even more interesting. Finally, kind of out of nowhere, he's just staring at her for a while while she kind of like half sleeps. And out of nowhere, he asks where she lives. And she asks, Why are you asking me that? And she was scared that he was going to come after her family. Yeah. And he says, Well, I can't take you home if you don't tell me where you live. And then threatens that if she told anyone what they looked like, they would come back for her and her family. Oh my god! Weird, right?
1: Who the fuck is this person?
0: (laughs) I'm gonna keep you waiting. I'm gonna keep you waiting. Oh,
1: you're doing the thing to me that I do to you all the time. I know.
0: How's that going for you? I fucking hate it. Well, now you know. And I'm not. Maybe you'll stop stop doing doing it it it. it to me. Dang it! (laughs) evil jinx that was an evil jinx <laughs> so he also asks for her phone number and writes it down in this like little black book and he tells her that it's the book that he keeps all the phone numbers of all the drug dealers in sioux falls i know what yep i know oh my god it's so weird it's so weird <sighs> So he starts to pick up, and uh, she kind of gives him directions to her house, basically. They pull up in front of her house, and he drops her off at the door, and she just runs into her house. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't even wait to see him drive off. She just ran into the house. So she was really close with her brother, Bob, so she ran to wake him up and shook him awake. When he woke up, the first question she asked was, Bob, would policemen rape me? What? Yeah. When Bob gave her that response, an incredulous no. Well. Well, she kind of spilled the entire story out. And he's like, we need to call the police right now. Oh, honey. honey. And she didn't want to. She was so scared. Yeah. So he tells her, sleep on it a little bit and we'll figure it out in the morning. So she kind of collapses into bed. Did she
1: sleep on his bedroom floor? Because in my mind, that's what happens.
0: I don't know, but that's kind of what I picture too. Yeah, Or like he he gave her the bed and he slept on the floor or something. Mm -hmm. So um, the next morning, she's up at about nine-ish. So she slept for what, three hours? I know, yeah, but she's got all this adrenaline. Now, while she saw it all go down, there's still this kind of sense of like... I don't want to say denial, and I don't want to say hope, but some kind of a mix of the two. I can only imagine that going through her head, though. Like, that didn't really happen. Exactly. So she's thinking the other boys probably made it home safe. hmm Somehow. So the first thing that she does in the morning is she calls Roger's house. Yeah. And his mom answers and said, well, he never came home. There, he's probably at the Beatty's, Dana and Stewart." Mm-hmm. And uh, he wasn't. So after a while, Roger's brother called Sandra back, and she told him the entire story as well. By the time Roger's brother made the call back, he already knew that his brother was gone. And here's how he knew. Okay. So that morning, a man and his wife were test-driving a new car through the state preserve. And the man noticed something weird looking in the grass. He pulled off, and as he's approaching, he's thinking, this can't be what I think it is. This can't be what I think it is. But it was. And he found three of the four bodies. So Lyon County Sheriff Craig Vinson, who is a really cool guy, took the call, and he and his deputy, Leroy Grice, headed out to the park right away. Once he saw the scene, he was there for like a split second before he called for immediate backup. Yeah, yeah. And by mid-morning, there were eight jurisdictions involved and two states because it's, again, like it's a border. So you've got South Dakota people, you've got Iowa people, you've got feds, you've got sheriff.
1: You have National Park,
0: uh, like the police
1: and the security within the National Park itself.
0: Yeah, so you've got lots and lots and lots of authorities on hand there. Kind of as they're walking around... Getting a sense of the scene, Sheriff Vincent is just thinking, what the hell happened here? Now, they were um, kind of walking around the area, and the fourth body was quickly found. And we don't really know who was where, necessarily, but I think that Dana, Stuart, and Mike were probably the initial three. And that Roger, because he was shot first, was shot closer to the original campsite. That's what okay. makes sense to me.
1: Do you think one of them like tried to get away or
0: I tried to crawl away. Yeah. I know that there were some confirmation shots done to oh, just make sure. Fuck. Yeah, so I don't think reading the autopsy information The amount of bullets and buckshot that was in those boys, I don't think that they were alive to suffer, to be honest with you. Okay, okay. I think they were shot and they were done, with the exception of Mike, who was shot in the shoulder first. Uh But I think once those shots to the head happened, there was no chance.
1: Oh, Jesus.
0: Yeah. So it was a horrific scene. And again, that's buckshot, so that just decimates a body. Wait, were they shots to the head? There were shots to the backs of the heads of the final three boys, execution style.
1: Oh, with buckshot.
0: buckshot. Yeah. Oh, that hurts my stomach. Yeah. Yeah. This crime is unbelievably inhumane. I mean, these kids were hunted. Why? Yeah. Good question. So... Now, they all had ID on them. Of course, we remember that from when they were asked. So they were all uh, identified very quickly and families notified pretty much right away.
1: It's shocking that, I mean, maybe this speaks
0: to stupid criminal, that they didn't take those IDs. I think it's stupid criminal. I think it's stupid criminal. And what you'll find out later is that, well, I won't spoiler it, but they are stupid. Just, (laughs) wow. So Sandra being the trooper that she is hitchhikes herself to the station. They took her in and first what they did is they read her her rights which I think Mm -hmm. is interesting. But you know maybe that was just standard operating procedure for taking any kind of statement from somebody but Well she was 13. She went by herself. She did.
1: Okay. So yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So she hitchhiked and they read her her rights when she got there. So once she kind of gave like an initial statement The police at the station called Sheriff Vinson to get there right away. Um, He's the head honcho. So once he got there, they kind of had like an instant connection where like before he got there, she felt like they were like really interrogating her, like it was her fault. And once he got there, she just felt more comfortable because he treated her much more gently. So once he got there, she was able to provide a 10 page handwritten statement in full detail. Wow. Yeah. So, but at this point, you know, she's given the statement. She tells the story. And the police are incredibly frustrated for the same reason that you are. Why the hell did this happen? Mm -hmm. What possible motive could there be? And why was she still alive? Yeah. It's too incredible.
1: It's so confusing. And I can imagine a sense of, like, disbelief amongst the police if there weren't these bodies.
0: Yeah. Well... That dis- disbelief came out in the fact that they all thought that she was involved or that she knew the killers or that it was kind of some kind of a setup for the other boys or something. She's 13. She's 13, yeah. But that's what they thought, that it, she had to be like an insider, you know? Okay. So she provided a sketch with a sketch artist of all three men and she was able to do so in extreme detail because she just held that focus the entire time. Like she was memorizing mm-hmm. So by the 19th, they wanted her to go on a ride along uh, with Sheriff Vincent to the state preserve and to kind of walk them through the scene. She was horrified, but she went and kind of while that was happening, her family was moved to a safe house Mm -hmm. while the investigation was underway because they knew that the killer had her address, phone number and stuff like that. And had made that threat. So the family's in a safe house, and Sandra's going to a ride-along to the state preserve. And she basically kind of walks him through the whole scene and says, like, yeah, this is where this happened. This is where this happened. And, again, this is where suspicions start to bubble up that basically follow Sandra for the next, like, three decades. Oh, my God. four decades. Now, because her life was spared, she also was not super injured. She mm-hmm. uh, was examined for this sexual assault and the doctor did conclude that she was violently raped but other than some slight scratches from the wire on her wrist, she hadn't been shot she hadn't been punched, she hadn't been injured in other ways other than the rape so the police and the community were suspicious that she knew the perpetrators and they tried to kind of keep her identity kind of hush hush but it was figured out pretty quickly amongst people in town that she was you know, the the girl that survived. And they started to call her the Gitchy Girl. Mm-hmm. And that was a nickname that kind of followed her for, like, literally years, and mm-hmm. years, and years. It was kind of a way to kind of dehumanize her in this entire process.
1: Yeah. That's, uh Fuck you, people.
0: Yeah, seriously. I'm looking for
1: a fidget. There oh, Santa am. hat here. Okay, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Yeah,
0: perfect. <laughs> so, again, like, there's all this suspicion. And... I don't agree with that suspicion. I think it's freaking disgusting. But there is this big question is why is she unscathed, relatively unscathed?
1: I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but neither doesn't. does it sound like any of the rest of this
0: crime. No part of it really does. No part of it really does. So at this point, Sheriff Vinson, you know, knows that Sandra's telling the truth. He feels to her like the one person that believes her. So she agreed to drive with him. Mm-hmm. every day for 12 days Aww. to try to find the farmhouse that she was taken to. So she sat in the car with this man, and together they drove hundreds and hundreds of miles of road. That's crazy. Yeah, and out there, there was a lot of abandoned farmhouses, so yeah. Sheriff Vinson would kind of have this hope, like, oh, we're coming up on one, is this the one, is this the one? And it wouldn't be every time for 12 days. But. I'm wondering how,
1: like, how good of a Look, Could she have even gotten of the farmhouse? Like, in the truck, there's at least, there's lights on the truck. There's lights inside Mm -hmm. the truck.
0: Farmhouse? I don't, I mean, I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Did she find anything? Now, there was a point where headlights would have been on and presumably Mm -hmm. facing the house. So that would have been one way for her to get some Mm -hmm. um, detail on it. I think the other way that you would be able to tell is the level of dilapidation. Yeah. So, like, some of these abandoned farmhouses are, like, just houses that, you know, nobody lives in or whatever. And other ones are, like, just a frame of a structure. And then all levels of decay in between. Yeah. Now, where she was taken, what was left of the house was almost nothing. And what was left of the barn was basically just a frame. Okay. Okay. So that at least would make it kind of distinct. So you know I just love Sheriff Vinson and he just had this like gentle soul and he would drive with her and he would just try to keep her calm and engaged and just try to keep her feeling safe so he would ask her about like you know what she's studying in school and her family and he would talk about his family and I read this kind of anecdote where she was really like surprised that he and his family had like family dinners Mm -hmm. because she and her siblings were kind of free range in yeah. a way like um and so she was like what you have dinner together as a family and she was just kind of like um kind of got a kick out of that and stuff and I just thought that was kind of touching. It's so, so cute yeah so again they drove every day for almost two weeks She was out of school, Um, she was kept out of school, and she was questioned pretty much daily Mm -hmm. by the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigations, and it just really felt like only Vincent believed her. Mm -hmm. So now on November 29th, again, that's 12 days later, they're driving and driving and driving and driving and driving and chatting and blasting the Rolling (laughs) Stones, which I love. It sounds like also like it's a bit
1: therapeutic.
0: Yeah, intentionally yeah. or not, it's yeah. yeah it's, I think he's very, very smart.
1: Yeah, he's, he's very, very smart. He's relationship building. He's mm-hmm. trust building.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's a tender soul. So they're driving. All of a sudden, Sandy's like, "That's it. That's it. That's it." And she spots the farmhouse. Wow. So they pull into the farmhouse and um, they start walking the scene. He calls for backup. Another squad car shows up. And while they're kind of walking around, a white pickup truck drives by. And who is behind the seat but the boss? Mm. So Sandra just lets out a blood-curdling scream. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Sheriff gets in the car and chases him down. Interestingly, the driver of the car pulls over right away. Okay. He doesn't try to give chase. He just pulls over. And out crawls scum of the earth, Alan Fryer. Fuck you, Alan Fryer. Yep. I know who you are. Fuck you. Apprehended. That's yeah. That's right. Yeah. Hope you're enjoying your time in jail right now. That's right. You better be in jail. He is. Good. So he was apprehended right away. And um, he at first was like, I don't, know what you're about. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. And then he admits like, okay, me and my brothers were out hunting pheasants at the park. His two brothers are David Hatchetface Fryer <laughs> yep. and James Ray J.R. Fryer, and the other two men are apprehended shortly thereafter. Classy fellas. Yep. So at this point, you might be asking, who the actual hell are these monsters? I
1: am. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Uh, we don't know a ton about their background, which mm-hmm. is frustrating.
1: They sound straight out of fucking Deliverance. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Deliverance vibes. That one episode of The X-Files Home, season four, episode one vibes. Shut up. That's such a fucked up episode. It is. It is. And in this case, these brothers reminded me of that so hard. Uh, Not
1: the end, though, hopefully. No, no,
0: no. No, thank God. Alan, the oldest one, the boss, was 29. Mm Mm-hmm. David was 24, and Jr. was just 21. So he was only three years older than Stuart Beatty. Now, not a lot is known about their upbringings, um, or really their lives at all, before the, these murders, other than the fact they were kind of just ne'er-do-wells. Mm-hmm. And J. uh, since he was in jail already at the time, had a record for some battery theft, crimes like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could see kind of the escalation potentially coming. Yep. Alan Fryer, like I said, was 29, he was actually married and employed at a farm. So from what I could tell, it seemed like he was kind of the most successful of the brothers. Mm-hmm. He's the boss. And I kind of wonder if kind of being married and being employed and kind of having a life made him a little bit more empathetic to Sandra than had she been left with Jr. for instance, um, who was the one that brutally raped her. Did he have any kids? I don't think so.
1: Okay. Because that was giving me some kind of paternal vibes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if he did or not, but I think he was on the family track, you know? Yeah. Okay. He had gone to school for a time, but he dropped out when he was 16. And at 16, he had only made it to the seventh grade. Okay. All the brothers were tested as far as IQ uh, for their ability to withstand trial And Alan's IQ was tested out to be about 87. Okay. And then JR's was 85. And then I don't have David's, but low average, right?
1: Low average, I wouldn't put it at any major impairment. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, to me, I'm not a forensic person, but it's like, low average, you're still, you still, by other means, should be able to function in society.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's basically what was kind of decided through um, through all the kind of examination and litigation. Mm-hmm. So basically, like there was not really a motive that they were able to come to because the brothers denied everything until David Fryer Hatchet Face, decided to plead guilty to three charges of murder and one charge of manslaughter. I presume that one was for Mike at the end. Now, he thought that that would provide him some leniency in sentencing, which it did not turn out to do. Good hatchet face. Yeah. But he thought, like, okay, if I plead guilty, then maybe that'll come with, you know, a little bit of leniency. Ah, I said that was David. It was Alan, the boss. Alan pled guilty? Alan pled guilty. So, again, that leniency or that um, kind of, I don't know, feelings. He had some kind of feelings. I don't know. There's
1: some kind of squishy marshmallow in there somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the deal was. But he did want to come clean, and he did end up giving a statement that kind of initially denied his culpability, but eventually kind of admitted wrongdoing and he stated that he wanted to come clean he said i want to tell you everything but there was still not really a why identified so what investigators and a later prosecution thought was the motive was sexual Mm -hmm. that um, yeah like i said before that sandra was the object that perhaps dana being a boy kind of pissed them off to the point of no return especially jr Mm-hmm. who, even though the boss was the boss, quote-unquote, Jr. was kind of the ringleader of the violence. He was the yeah. one kind of ordering the executions. He was the one that committed the rape.
1: It's interesting because normally it is the oldest... Like when we've seen families or groups like this, mm-hmm. it's typically the oldest. Yeah. And you said JR was already in prison?
0: Mm-hmm. Who was he in prison for? He was. Uh some assaults. Some minor battery charges, some theft charges. Okay. So he was also the youngest one. So it was kind of, it flips that birth order thing. Sorry, Erickson. Yeah. Also, uh, that means that you youngest children can still be evil. It's not always our fault. (sighs) If we're evil, it's because of you. Whatever. Whatever. Oldest babies forever. So, like I said, there was kind of a, a quick, swift trial underway. Sandra's testimony being pretty central to it. Yeah. To get all three tried and tested and all that stuff it did end up taking about 18 months between apprehension to conviction Mm -hmm. and they were all given life without parole good now in 1974 which uh, was kind of not too long after the conviction date of may 20th alan fryer and jr escaped from the jail oh my god they escaped the fuck yeah they escaped the jail stole a vehicle and fled the state (gasps) yeah who the fuck are these people where are their parents i know they are like uncontrolled and uncontrollable i like how sandra's mom got bullshit i know i know but where are these guys parents Uh. yeah and who's regulating them? And also, what is going on at the jail in Lyon County and Minnehaha County, Iowa? Yeah, get its answer Iowa. for yourself. 1973, Iowa. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? <sighs> so I assume it's better now. And actually, the um, <laughs> that work release program, upon hearing that everything happened that day, basically because Jr. was able to dupe that system, completely revamped its programming as a result.
1: It didn't go down the way the, like, Reagan election did it. Was it the Reagan election or the Bush election? What are you talking about? I can't remember if it was Reagan or Bush won, but they used a really distorted version of a a guy that committed a crime after he was released from prison. Ah, my mom's going to punch me if I don't remember (laughs) this. Um... Willie Horton. The Willie Horton case. Oh. It was yeah. Bush. It was I, Bush that was 1. Bush. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. I just needed to know that.
0: No, it's okay. That Why was I thinking about Willie Horton the other day? <laughs> or not the other day, but like at some point.
1: Do you just often think about Willie Horton? I do. <laughs> I
0: just want to have like, drifting off to sleep I think about him. Um, oh, no. Uh, watching 13th. That's it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they brought him out as like the caricature of like the black rapist, quote unquote. Yeah. So any whozles, these brothers escape the Lyon County Jail. And luckily they were not able to escape for long. Good. And they were like pretty distinct looking dudes. When you see their mugshots, like I feel like you would know these guys if you saw them, you know. What are their last um, name again? Fryer. Friar.
1: Oh, yeah. Those are distinct. They do look like the homeboys
0: Mm -hmm. from that episode. Holy shit.
1: Yep. All right. Go ahead.
0: So uh, they were found in Gillette, Wyoming and brought back to face their charges once again. So like I said before, they were all convicted to life without possibility of parole. All uh, attempted some level of appeal Allen attempted quite a bit, actually, but it failed every time. None of them, they have never been able to win any appeal. Allen is serving life at um, the penitentiary in Anamosa, Iowa. And then David and JR are at Fort Dodge Correctional Facility in Fort Dodge, Iowa. I don't know why they're separated, but I think that's interesting, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it could just be like a logistical thing. I don't know. So um, now the after effect of this case for Sandra... Like I said, it was rough. People in town, even after the Fryer brothers were convicted, they thought that she was in on it. And I think there was just this vitriol of, like, how dare you survive?
1: Yeah. When we
0: lost these, you know, four wonderful boys. And these boys were all well loved, they Mm -hmm. were awesome sounding kids, loved music. You know, they were good students. They were just good kids. And I think there was just this kind of outrage. And the four boys were all from Sioux Falls. And Sandra was from Harrisburg. And I kind of wondered, too, if it was a little bit of, like, this outsider girl survived, but our boys, you know, had to die. And so she kind of carried the stigma with her. And as a result, she didn't talk about it for years and years and years and years and years. And like I said, when she had grandkids... She had this thought of, like, okay, one day my grandkids are going to Google me, Mm -hmm. and they're going to find stories of the Gitchy Girl, and I'm not going to have controlled any of that narrative. Yep. So she was like, no, I'm taking my story back. Hell yeah. Uh, Yeah, and she contacted Mr. and Mrs. Hammond to kind of get this book written, and I love that. And Mr. Hammond is a teacher, which I love that, too. (laughs) So... She kind of took back the narrative and was able to really, I think, breathe some new life into this story and also to give some voice to these boys. Also, like, we wouldn't know without Sandra's story what a hero that Mike was. Yeah. you know, We wouldn't know that Dana and Stu kind of stood together as brothers, you know, forever until the end. And, you know, we wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, Roger was kind of the first down. We wouldn't know any of that Mm -hmm. without her coming forward to tell her story. So the fact that she took back that narrative, I think, did a service to herself, but also a service to the memory of those boys. Oh, hell yeah. So that is the story of the Gitchy Manitou campfire murders. I still don't get why. I know. Yeah.
1: I'm annoyed because it's like these people are just
0: like chaos. Yeah. Incarnate. Yes. My thinking is I think Jr. was the ringleader. Mm-hmm. And from what I could tell, there could be some truth to the idea that they went out pheasant hunting and they saw the kids and they thought, let's mess with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then that led to like, okay, the kids are going to be braver than we thought. You know, they're going to ask, who are you? And all these types of questions. And, and I don't. it doesn't even sound like they were – Extra brave
1: mm-hmm. but they had the bravado and the chutzpah of teenagers.
0: Exactly and they had the I think presence of mind to ask questions and mm-hmm. to stay vocal and I think that I don't know if I'm just kind of imposing this on Jr. because of his extra layer of brutality as far as the rape of Sandra but they basically for me kind of fell into three roles like Jr. was the the rapist, and also the one kind of calling the shots. And then Face was really driving, like mm-hmm. he was the driver. And then the boss ended up being, in the end, sympathetic enough to Sandra to take her home. Yeah. And I think that she was able to unnerve him enough that she saved herself in that process. Yeah. So I think that he was able to be unnerved, Catch-A-Face was able to be kind of out of the action enough. And I think JR was really central to the brutality of it. It sounds like it. He sounds to be the the actual ringleader, although he yeah. wasn't being called boss. Right, yeah. And I think boss was just being called boss because he was the oldest one. Mm-hmm. And so when those kids decided to kind of talk back a little bit, that that pissed him off. Oh, yeah. Enough to... To spin out and to kind of engage that chaos. I don't think any of this probably would have happened if the boss and hatchet face were just messing around with those kids that night. I think Jr. had to be there for this to go down. Mm -hmm. And I think if if you can buy that, then I think the sexual motivation combined with being ticked off by the bravado of the kids. Mm -hmm. I think that is all the motive that we're ever going to get from them. It's not enough. It's not satisfying at all. Mm. But I think sometimes, like very rarely, there are these like really fluke extreme crimes where the motive is just a game.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really, I have to agree. I think that probably more often than we want to admit, it's just these people that are violence and chaos. Mm-hmm. And JR seems like he was violence and chaos Enabled by a situation.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it, triggered. Like, b- yeah, Totally. I think he was triggered. I think he probably had a really fragile ego. Mm-hmm. In a way, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Alyssa Bustamante before we kind of dug into the other stuff with it. Just the idea that, that initially we could tag it as a thrill kill. Yeah. I think you could probably put something like this kind of in the same mm-hmm. category. Yeah. Um, I think that he was out to play games that night. And I think the game lost control of him and he lost control of it.
1: Yeah. So I wonder if Alan wasn't there, how it would have played out. Yeah. Cause it would have gone down differently.
0: It would have gone down differently. I think that if Alan wasn't there, Sandra probably wouldn't have made it out alive.
1: I don't think so. And I don't know if we'd ever have answers to any of this.
0: No, I don't think so. And they, you know, Jr. was the one to like spin out at Alan when, Mm -hmm. he had Sandra alive at the second farm
1: did Alan actually shoot
0: anybody? I don't believe he did we don't know that for sure they all had guns Mm -hmm. one of the guns was stolen I think that most of the weapons were eventually found upon like a drag of that lake but you can't really tell who shot what Uh, two of the guns were of similar type and then one was a, a deviation but not knowing who had what you know, if two are shooting buckshot and one is shooting something slightly different, bullets from one gun shooting buckshot and one gun shooting something, another um, large caliber <laughs> missile. <laughs> I can tell you know so much guns. about guns. <laughs> um, well, what I'm saying is, like, you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily who was shooting which gun if two of the guns were the same and there's three shooters. Uh, So, yeah, that's my best theory, honestly. Like, at the end of the day, it's weird because it started out as a case that seemed really, like, the narrative was so crazy, but it seemed kind of uncomplicated in a way. And Mm -hmm. then digging into the kind of, like, added layer of the fact that telling the story, like, basically brought Sandra new life. Yeah. In middle age, I think is huge. I know. I'm
1: glad that she reclaimed it I hope she feels empowered now yeah yeah I mean there's no there's no getting past seeing three of your close friends murdered but yeah
0: yeah but she she's telling her story you know Mm -hmm. she's badass so hell yeah you fucking got your way out of that situation she did and she was amazing she was really amazing
1: hell yeah
0: so yeah there you have it thanks i think mm. you're welcome
1: i'm angry and confused yeah that's kind of what i've been feeling all week we started this and i was feeling all nostalgic for like cabin parties and now i'm angry and like what the fuck people
0: yeah now i like never want to go to the woods again <laughs> even though i'm such a nature person
1: i'll go to the woods murder people yeah. can't live without them i know ah, well thank you welcome to the new year everybody maybe this Indeed. is going to set the tone for the year
0: i hope not i hope not i hope nothing like this happens this year yeah but yeah i hope that we told an intriguing tale today i think you did cool oh, good. <laughs> um, so uh, as always i would say you know take a minute look at the pictures of those boys You know, uh, hold a space for them in your day to remember them and applaud their bravery. Yeah. Yeah, and go Sandra if you're out there. Fuck yeah, Sandra. We love you. We celebrate you. So preview us next week a little bit. It's going to be (laughs) funky.
1: So next week might feel like a little bit of a deviation from our traditional narrative. Yeah. Because I rabbit holed really hard And got into a whole slew of things, so you guys get to benefit from that. Next week, we are going to investigate the question of, is there an active serial killer or killers in the city of Chicago right now as we speak? Oh my god. That's going to be wild. We are going to take a look at the deaths of dozens of women. Mm. Literally dozens. Wow. Try to find some connecting lines.
0: Wow. Okay, this is gonna be major. What if we crack this case and we get famous? Ooh. I terrible killer to justice. I have leads.
1: Ooh. And y'all know me too well by this point that
0: we have to talk about Chicago PD. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. I mean, big city PDs are complicated and rife with issues, and Chicago is uh, definitely not free of that. I didn't realize how not free of that until I started digging into this. Mm. Oh, this is going to be so interesting. So come back and walk with us down that strange and winding road.
1: Walk with us, talk with us, join us on the socials if you have any information about anything because yeah
0: yeah ideas feedback we love it all ah well thank you (laughs) for coming back to us for another week we're excited thanks friends yeah yeah and yeah i cannot wait to hear about this next crazy crazy story so oof i guess with that we should probably like take our old butts to bed huh yeah probably yeah probably all right people Well, as always, be nice, eat cheese, and we love love you you so much. So, so, so much. You have no idea. Uh,
1: We hope that your next camping trip is happy and not like this. Yes. Stay safe off the airplane. Stay safe.
0: Bye, friends. Hatchet
1: faces is also somebody that I used to work with.